thankfully, our mortality rates in first world countries is you know two to five percent. They're pretty low, and, and we only had like a minority who would agree to talk at all, and we only had two non-donors. And they asked me right when they died, you know, we're dying. And, 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 then, and then they reflected, one of the parents reflected on that and she said, but I guess they had to ask then. For me, I guess I see it more as one aspect of a conversation around what parents might want and need around end of life. All those kinds of conversations that, that are so difficult, especially in intensive care when things go so quickly. And there is this issue of initiating these conversations in general. They're just really hard. Hello, my name is Rachel Ekbeko. I'm one of the Associate Editors of Archives of Disease and Childhood, or ADC, and a consultant in paediatric intensive care. Welcome to the new ADC Spotlight podcast. We'll be covering areas that don't usually get much attention or might be taken for granted. The aim being to engage in dialogue and inquiry, being curious how we might do things differently. Today, I'm joined by Anna-Sophie Darlington and Susan Bratton to discuss organ donation in the context of having a conversation with parents. Anna-Sophie authored the paper Parents' Experiences of Requests for Organ and Tissue Donation, The Value of Asking, and Susan, the accompanying editorial, Bereaved ICU Parental End-of-Life Care Goals, Including Organ Donation regardless of eligibility. And, and you'll listen to a, a lively podcast. Some of it will be comparing different things from the States and in the UK, as well as from different backgrounds. Uh, Susan being a intensivist and uh, Anne-Sophie a psychologist. I enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy it too. To read these articles, please visit our website on adc.bmj.com. So welcome, Anna-Sophie and Susan. And, and before we begin, please could you introduce yourselves to the listeners? Um, Anne-Sophie Darlington. I'm an associate professor um, in the School of Health Sciences at the University of Southampton in the UK. And I'm a psychologist by background, and I have an interest in uh, research on uh, end-of-life care for children. And I'm Susan Bratton. I'm an emeritus professor from the University of Utah and uh, with uh, Primary Children's Medical Center, which was uh, where the children were cared for. And I have a long interest in organ donation, primarily from the organ donor standpoint, and worked with the uh, U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services Breakthrough Collaborative to improve our organ donation. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, and you come from very different backgrounds, but have an interest in this, in this area. Um, and, and the focus would be how do we approach parents? So if we, if, we, if we were to start with you, Susan, from your uh, experience as, a, as an intensivist, when, when would you start thinking about talking about the potential for organ donation? Well, I, I think that is a, a very difficult question. And I, I think, you know, the thing that we have to remember as the intensivist is we, we are the person caring for the donor. And so we, we need to keep their interests first and but, but but we are affected by caring for transplant candidates children who never get an organ and die and the people who get organs and so it depends on your practice um and in the past it was much easier when donation after circulatory determination of death was not available be, because 
determination of neurologic death requires all these criteria and you need time. And so there are some children who come in and are just, you know, have had some catastrophic event and they're just irreversibly dying. And so that's not somebody to talk about at least organ donation with that you, you know, that you cannot stabilize long enough to place the organs. But this all, you know, and, and then there's the child who comes in and has had like a cardiac arrest for some reason, a prolonged one, but they have, they're fairly stable. And so we know that, you know, they're likely to either be severely damaged or to go on to neurologic death if the, if the arrest was long enough. So it's very difficult to always know, you know, who's going to be eligible for donation after neurologic death until time has transpired. So I think, I think you really have to um, develop a feel for who to approach. So in, in my personal practice, I would try to delay organ donation comments until I thought it was extremely clear. So, you know, when they were having the second exam for a brain death exam, or, you know, as DCD became available, you know, once the parents had decided to withdraw. That's not always possible because sometimes the parents ask you about it, mm. you know, and, and yeah. so I would always try to say, well, right now, let's focus on things that are important for your child and we'll talk about that later. But that doesn't always work either. And so sometimes I would ask the OPO to come over and talk to them about things in general, but I always tried to not discuss that in particular for their child in, until one of those two other points were met. So you're talking about a spectrum of, of potential there, Susan. And, and, and before we go to uh, Anne-Sophie, maybe you could make explicit why it is that you delay that conversation to those, well, potentially those two points. There's an well, underlying I mean, principle. Yeah, it's an underlying principle that you don't want, you want to act in that child's best interest and not right. use their child as a means to, to retrieve organs. Indeed. You so, know, and and I, th I think the other thing that people need to always remember is there are not that many children who die in the ICU. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, thankfully, our mortality rates in first world countries is, you know, two to five percent, depending on if you're in the NICU, you know, or the cardiac ICU, but they're, they're pretty low. And the majority of those children who die are withdrawn on. That's right. I don't know about um, numbers for the, in the States, but in the UK, say last year, based on PICNET data, uh, there's about 700 children per year who, who die and not all of them would be eligible or not, which comes to, to Anne-Sophie and the, um, your topic of interest. Would you, would you introduce that in, in context of what we've just been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess we were um, interested in um, finding out the experiences of parents around having discussions about this topic. And um, when we looked in the literature, there is there are some studies that talk about these experiences, but um, mostly um, they ask parents whose child was eligible for donation about what happened, how those discussions went and what that was like. And so we had an opportunity in our study to ask a group of bereaved parents of whom we didn't know whether um, their child was eligible or not, whether, anyone had discussed it with them, so these were bereaved parents and parents, some parents with a child with a life-limiting illness, 
um, whether anyone had a discussion with them about organ donation and what that was like. And so in our study, I guess we were interested particularly also because obviously there's so many campaigns to raise awareness. So what does that do? And we know that um, some opportunities are missed. So we asked these parents and the majority in our group, we, we interviewed 24 parents. The majority had not had a discussion. Um, and I think the most interesting thing that we found particularly was that if for some parents no discussion was had and they said they assumed that actually their child was probably not eligible because their organs weren't good enough or their health wasn't good enough and they said things like well the the organs were probably unusable and that's why probably nobody had a discussion and I thought well um, maybe that's the case and maybe not and so therefore we thought actually maybe this opens up this debate about this should be part of end of life care discussions in some way although I don't have the answer about how that has to happen exactly so um, and I think Susan you made that distinction as well in your paper where you said that moves the focus um, of talking about organ donation with the focus on organ donation per se to making it part of end of life conversations yes and I, th I thought that was i thought that was a really um positive way to reframe this for families yeah you know you know it's, it's, so it's, it's instead of trying to i mean because currently at least in the u.s system the opo's job is you know it, which is an, it, what is the opo oh, oh, excuse me organ procurement organization I think it's your organ and tissue um, donation organization that you have in the UK. Yeah, there's several dependent on on the in the background of uh, oh, I, I, in, in countries. That's right. In, in the US, there's this there are these regional entities that cross states, and so if you have a, a patient in an ICU on a ventilator, who is described by the people who pay for it, the federal government, as an imminent risk of death, you are supposed to notify them. But, but that's left to you as the ICU provider to decide what that is. But, but, but in the system, you know, the OPO is an independent entity. And mm -hmm. so you have to call them. They don't know the patient's there if, if you don't. And, and so, so, you know, their focus is on optimizing donation. Yeah. But, but I think the, the paper's point is, is that if you look at it from the family of the dying patient, if, if they had greater contact with the OPO just for, for information, because this is only a small number of patients, yep. you know, that, that, that then they wouldn't have to talk to everybody in detail, but they could say, you know, I, I'm so sorry to hear, you know, that this is the situation for your child, you know, and in this case, your, your baby has, your child has an infection that prevents donation, you know, and then they would know, or, or your yeah. child would be eligible to, to be, or whatever donor but so the I guess the question then is um uh, would you see that role for the OPO or rather for the for the physician kind of um, in charge of the care or, or the nurses or whoever other health professionals to discuss that as part of end-of-life care or well I, I would think ideally it would be the OPO and the reason I say that yeah is is, is that you know physicians have you know many wonderful aspects but sometimes we we, you know, we are, you know, everyone is biased by their own experience. 
Yep. And, and one of the problems with who is eligible is that varies over time. So like children that were ineligible several years ago might be eligible now. And, you know, and, and we, of course, never update our knowledge that completely. Nope. And then some of it depends regionally on like the transplant surgeon. It ideally should be the OPO because they're in the most, you know, the most current knowledge of what, what the surgeons will and will not take. But I guess you then you're linking it back to eligibility. And so you could argue that maybe anyone should be able to have a conversation in terms of saying, have you ever thought about that? Or is there something that you, I mean, I don't know the exact phrasing for that, but just raising it as a topic, not, not, not to discuss anything around whether that's possible. Well, I guess in my thinking about it, um, it's very hard to predict who's going to die. Yep. But so I think if you gave it to any person in the ICU who died, I mean, even, even if they just came in fulminantly died, you know, you could use the line that, that, that we always are asked to use is, you know, if, if we're withdrawing on a child or they're neurologically dead is, I would like for you to speak to someone about organ donation, organ and tissue donation, so that you can make an informed decision, for, a good decision for you and your family. Mm. So, we, so the OPO tries to not let the physician say, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't want to talk to the organ donation people, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is a fairly yes. negative introduction. Yes. And so yes. I think you could say, you know, when children die, they, they, they might be potential tissue donors. Yes. And I'd like for you to speak to someone so that you can make a good decision for your child and your family. Yep. And, and, and the other thing that would do is that would improve communication between the OPO and the hospitals. And it would en and enable better tracking. Because just like if people can reach neurologic death, but they only are declared that if we do all the tests. So you mean because it becomes more embedded and more routine because it, yeah. it, because it applies to anyone who is dying. Yeah. So, so I think this is also one of the areas where things might be subtly different in the way we've organized ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the, in the UK, um, we've got specialist nurses for organ donation and medical directors uh, offices for, for organ donation who are part of the same, uh, what we would call oh. trust, part of the same okay. hospital. Okay. So, so in theory, the, uh, the conversations could be had easier. Um, there are different team members. Uh, and even in that situation, uh, starting the conversation with parents in the wider sense uh, doesn't uniformly happen for several reasons so talking about this and talking about enabling that conversation uh, and as i understand from the paper uh, is that there might be uh, concerns uh, amongst uh, healthcare staff to uh, to open up the conversation mm. of introducing the topic and i wonder whether this paper might make things easier in that sense because uh, several parents have expressed that uh, they're going to fill in the blanks. I, th I think that's very important. And, and I, I know, you know, after I became kind of the, the uh, local expert on organ donation at my hospital through this collaborative, you know, I started telling parents whose child was dying, just for you to know, if you ever question this later on, I called the organ donation people and your child was not eligible. And yes. I had to tell them one time, that, that, that um, because the parents, 
expressly told me that without any prompting that they did not want to talk to the organ donation people, mm-hmm. that their child would have been a potential donor, but you know, th- th- this just so they would know. But you did that out of, you did that because you had those links and it was just always, that was something that was, I don't, I don't know, something that you were doing far more. So therefore you initiated well, well, that conversation. Well, well, you're supposed to report anyone who dies, regardless yeah, okay. if they don't want to talk mm. to them. So, you know, so I just wanted them all to know yeah. because I mean, I think parents do look back because, you know, the, like I always tell the residents when somebody's dying, they're going to remember this for their whole life. You're going to yeah. remember it for some shorter period of time. You know, so, so like I always try to anticipate things that they would want to know. Yeah. And I guess what I'm also thinking about is that uh, the, the, a lot of guidance that, it sh- that, that, that says it should be part of end of life care. So I, I, for me, I guess I see it more as um, uh, one aspect of a conversation around what parents might want to need around end of life. And so all those kinds of conversations that that are so difficult, especially in intensive care when things go so quickly. And why is that still described in literature as something that is lacking and needing education? And I think there is this issue of initiating these conversations in general. They're just really hard. Yeah, they Mm. are hard. They are hard conversations. So do we know what might get in the way of asking? There are a lot of things that can inhibit asking about organ donation. And I think providers truthfully frequently just don't want to add stress to the families to make even make a decision. So any means of organ donation takes time. So if, if, if the child's brain dead, it still takes hours to days to place all the organs if they're stable. But if they have a donation after circulatory determination of death, one of the criteria to be a donor is that you have to die quickly. And so no one is perfect at that, right? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, so a a number of children are going to not die within that allocated time. And in my experience, because you have to have an OR available, it's always in the middle of the night, (laughs) you know, because you you have all all those resources available. So, so, So then you withdraw the ventilator and the child dies 65 minutes later and it was a 60 minute window. You know, that, yeah. that kind of is, you know, that's an additional burden for the family to bear. Yes. And so I, I think sometimes that we just feel like they can't have another thing. Yeah. You know, and, and so that, and that is interesting, isn't it? So, so then I think for me, that's about uh, us worrying about that additional burden and, and worrying about the, 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 I don't know, the emotions that's going to invoke. And then uh, the parents in, in this study saying that, Actually, you know, as we know, sometimes yes, it is it is burdensome, but it's something they so want to do that it actually gives them, I don't know, some solace, doesn't it? Right. So how do we know, and how do we get to how do we do that well so that those avenues are available for them? I guess another thing I wanted to say, which is interesting as well in in our study that. Um, as Susan was talking there, um, it's, it's another thing to add, but some of our health professionals also said it feels like a request at a time when we're supposed to be supporting people. So you're all of us, all of a sudden you're maybe asking something from them rather than just giving them the best care that you can. Mm. So there's a lot of, of, of that in the, in the health professionals, um, perception of, um, uh, what a professional should be doing in those circumstances uh, and, I, and I hear some 
protectiveness for their parents. And I think that said individually that they were very, very um, happy with the caring manner of the of the of the health uh, professionals. Uh, so that that was that was stated uh, up front. So would it be possible to adhere to this narrative of a health professional that's caring and also someone who's able to have those uh, initial conversations without there being a clash? I, I think so, but it's, you know, the studies that have been done on that are very limited because when you contact people that, that either were, who were approached and either did or didn't donate, you know, you only get a handful of them. It, you know, because I mean, it's it's very traumatic to have a child die. So so we 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 looked at a very small sample of we of patients that were don't have donated after circulatory determination of death, and, and we only had like a minority who would agree to talk at all, and we only had two non-donors, and the two the two non-donors said, well, they were very nice, but they wanted to take their organs out. And they asked me right when they died, you know, we're dying. And, 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 then, and then they reflected, one of the parents reflected on that. And she said, but I guess they had to ask then. Yeah. And then the parents who donated reflected that, that, it, that it meant was, it wasn't, it didn't give their child back, but it was a silver lining to a bad experience. You know, and so I, I think that it's very hard to know uh, even the plurality of people's opinions. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what's interesting in our study as well, and I've read this other, in other places as well, that actually parents did say that they've really felt for the health pressure. So not only do they talk about the care being great in a lot of instances, but they also, I think it's also about from their perspective, they understood that it was very difficult for health professionals to even raise this topic and they felt bad for them. And I sometimes wonder whether we see parents only as recipients of this it, conversation right and I, I think it sounds like the UK system would be even easier to implement this because if you had parents that had you know a negative re reaction to one of the nurses yes from from the organ donation you you could work that into your system so you could say what did we do wrong yeah you know whereas whereas here you know it's, it's you're always kind of accusing and blaming another agency yeah so that makes you more cautious <laughs> yeah yeah well, you know, you know, well, it's, 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 you know, so it would be easier to work out problems in your system, I think. You know, yeah. I mean, because you, 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 no one is ever perfect at speaking to every parent. No, and also it's completely unpredictable. Not completely, but there is an element of fear that is justified because also some parents told us that if they'd have been asked, they would have found that so burdensome. Like, I can't deal with anything at this point in time, and now you're asking me for this? And right. so, so there is, that is the difficulty, isn't it? But there is that unpredictability. And so how, how do you as a profession sort of field whatever is going to come at you? Right. So what after this, what now we, now we know this, we've have, we have our experiences, we've identified there's, there's an area of interest, an area of concern. What are we going to do? What are we going to do next? How are we, are we going to explore what this means for our practice um, and do something? Well, I mean, I guess because I obviously, I, I don't experience this, experience this in clinical practice, but I do, like, I, I think I was focusing on this thought that um, there's a repeated request for more um, communication skills training. And I, I delved a little bit deeper into this, uh, thinking about 
that actually the skills and the other people have written about this, the skills that we are teaching um, maybe uh, trainees or something are, I guess focusing on skills is maybe not what is needed here because skills feels like then you're going to become like a communication technician and it teaches you how to, I don't know, say the right things or look people in the eye. But actually it requires quite a bit of improvisation and, and flexibility in communication because you don't know what's going to happen. And maybe right. I I would think that actually that is maybe the kind of communication things that we need to instill, that there are things to ask and things to respond to but not in a, in a certain way but this might happen and maybe this is what you need to think about i i think that there would be lots of things you could do with this like for instance if you if you try to implement having someone knowledgeable currently knowledgeable about donation to talk to every child the parents the families of every child who died and 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 then just to have a a, a, que a questionnaire for the parents, like yes, no, did I was this good or bad? Did th did it make you feel uncomfortable? Was the information okay? It wouldn't have to be very long. A and then you could also look to see, you know, some other things about like the circumstances of the child's death. Like in the in the intensivist point of view, would that child have met neurologic criteria for death if they had waited, or if the family wanted to withdraw care early? If they withdrew care, did they die within an hour? You could have all sorts of important epidemiologic data. Mm. What proportion of children and circumstances died within whatever your uh, organ transplantation surgeon wants, that time period? I mean, there, there could be a lot of information with just a little bit of, of clinical data abstracted. Yeah, and I would add to that, I guess, some, some qualitative work where it'd be really interesting to log um, for me, I, I, I understand that it'd be really great, good if there was a person who could always do that, but I, I, I probably would like to see that being able to be done by nurses and physicians in general, especially because you said in the beginning that people do ask you as well. So I guess you oh, yeah, they respond do. to that in some way. So be interesting to, to just to kind of log what the responses are. How do, how do parents respond and how do, if we were to, have that conversation with everyone and then do like uh, uh, follow that up with bereaved parents and just get some more in-depth about what was what was that like and what, what were you thinking because I think we we think a lot about what we, what they are thinking and clearly that's not always right right mm. thank you very much both of you for uh, contributing to this uh, to this podcast I think we've had a very lively discussion we've had two slightly different um, backgrounds in, uh, in 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 country and uh, uh, and experiences, and through there some of the the voices of uh, of parents. And one of the things that I've taken from uh, from here, now that we've approached this potentially taboo, we uh, we need to have some more conversations about how do we understand this better, and in a, in a, in a way that is helpful to the uh, to the bedside healthcare people as well as parents. Uh, who might find themselves in this horrible situation. So thank you very much, and Sophie. You. Yeah, you're, and, you're welcome. And Susan for joining me. Very welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs>